Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, how are you at striking up a conversation with a complete stranger? Or maybe you do have that approachable look and strangers keep coming up to you, trying to talk with you. There are plenty of uh, long discussion threads online that begin with this question. Have you ever had a strange encounter with a complete stranger? And people are more than willing to share. Hundreds of people. Interestingly, many of these strange encounters seem to involve Portland or a Walmart. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. But uh, I want to share one with you that doesn't. This is a true story of a strange encounter, according to the writer anyway. Uh, it says, I was flying overseas for a two-year deployment. I was stuck at the Atlanta airport for several hours as a pretty nasty winter storm was raging outside. I was not in uniform, but I did have my military haircut and demeanor going. I decided I would head over to a little airport bar for a drink. The place was empty. I sit down at the bar and mindlessly stare at the TV. I sat there for a good 20 minutes alone when this very old man approached and sat down right next to me. My first thought was along the lines of, why is this weird dude in my space when this entire place is empty? He orders a drink and then bluntly asks me what unit I am with, clearly smelling the soldier on me somehow. I, of course, don't answer him, but I just casually tell him that I am in the service and I'm waiting for a delayed flight. Curious, I ask him how he knew I was in the service. He said, son, I served in the Army for almost 36 years. I can spot you guys a mile away. And we started talking Army. He was drafted in 1942 and sent to Europe in 1943. He was part of the invasion of Normandy, landing on Utah Beach in the first wave, led by Theodore Roosevelt, Jr. He decided the Army life was for him and stayed the duration of World War II in Europe. After the war, he became a drill sergeant and trained new recruits. He was deployed to the Korean Peninsula and participated in several key battles in the Korean War. He then did multiple tours in Vietnam from 1964 all the way through 1972. On his last tour, he was shot four times by enemy fire and lost his eyesight in one eye and the use of his left arm. He retired in 1977 as a command sergeant major. It was easily one of the most fascinating and engrossing conversations I have ever been a part of. This guy is a legend in my book. Three wars under his belt and right in the middle of some of the heaviest fighting the country has been involved with. Strange encounter. But interesting encounter, rewarding encounter, right? That's not a religious story, just an interesting one. But you have one to share that is religious, a faith story. But until you're willing to establish a rapport with other people or uh, initiate a conversation or maybe build a kind of conversational bridge, you might never get a chance to share yours. I'm not suggesting you go around tap shoulders on the uh, people on their shoulders from behind and asking them if they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, that could be dangerous, especially if you happen to be in Portland or in a Walmart. And it's doubly dangerous if you find yourself in a Walmart in Portland. But you should expect that there will come a time when God might lead you to a person who's wondering exactly what something like that means, just like Philip in our lesson from Acts. And you should be ready to answer. Once God finally revealed that his whole plan of salvation revolved around his own son, Jesus of Nazareth, suffering dying and rising again, the Jewish religious world was turned upside down. One man, son of a carpenter, the only way to God? 
They saw it as a dangerous teaching that was beginning to get people's attention. Lots of attention and lots of people. They'd done what they could to contain the problem by orchestrating his death, and they thought they'd solved it on Calvary. But then came Easter, and then Pentecost, and when a hundred or so followers became a whole movement, and then a church, a church on fire for Christ its Savior. It's a powerful and riveting story. It really is. Maybe um, you've read one of those novels that that begin with uh, two or three different groups of people, their stories, and, and they don't seem disconnected in any way. But by the time you get to the end of the book, the author sort of brings them all together. They converge into a, a climactic conclusion. Think about our lesson this morning like that. Three different stories finally connect by an overarching story, the story of the risen Christ, the Lamb of God who became our once and for all time sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. First, we have a story about an Ethiopian official who has unknowingly chosen a road that will lead to his conversion to Christianity. He knows his Bible because he's already been converted to Judaism. He knows the prophecies about the Messiah. He knows about the trouble in the temple that these followers of Jesus have been causing. It's no secret, but that was no immediate concern of his. Uh, by faith, at least, he was a Jew. He's just completed a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the temple, no small undertaking, and now he's on his way home. He decided to take the scenic route through the wilderness, maybe because of more solitude or maybe time to stop and study a scroll of Isaiah that he may have just purchased in the city. We also have the story of Philip, who along with Stephen and five others have been chosen to serve as deacons in the, in the new Christian church in Jerusalem, serving as glorified, or rather God-glorifying is better, I guess, waiters and delivery boys. These men were taking care of the distribution of food to widows and other ongoing uh, service kind of ministries. That way the apostles had been freed up to concentrate on their own work of preaching God's word and prayer. But we also have the story of God at work, bringing it all together in a most unlikely place and a most unlikely circumstance. The number of new believers was literally exploding in the city at that time. Even Jewish priests were coming to faith in Jesus. Stephen turned out to be a pretty good defender of the Christian faith himself, despite it being outside of his job description. So good that he was seized and brought before the Jewish council. Now, in the previous chapter, in Acts chapter 7, he's given a powerful testimony of God's history with his people. And he's talked about the tension that has always existed between their desire to please God and their overwhelming desire to please themselves. And he does such a great job of laying out the case of the council's role in the son of God's death that he stoned for it, murdered. That's when a young Pharisee named Saul, who witnessed Stephen's death, gets inspired to begin a personal vendetta against the Christians for the sake of his own Jewish faith. In fact, he's so good at rooting out and persecuting new believers that they begin to flee the city before they end up in prison. Now, Jesus had foretold that his story would be taken through all Judea and Samaria. And that began with the martyrdom of Stephen, the church's first casualty. Acts chapter 11 tells us that some of those scattered believers went well beyond Judea and Samaria. Uh, some traveled as far as Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, Antioch, uh, carrying the message of Jesus first to the, to the Jews and then to the Greeks in those places. And people were touched by the story. They saw the truth in it, and through the word of the Spirit came to saving faith. So that first great persecution of the church 
rather than destroying it, actually spread the good news everywhere people fled. God used what was meant for evil to accomplish his gracious purposes. And if you remember the story of Joseph in uh, Genesis in the Old Testament, it wasn't for the first time that happened. Deacon Philip had headed north out of town to Samaria when uh, he dis- decide, discovers that God has this successful evangelistic ministry waiting for him there. Even demons would flee before his, his preaching of the gospel. And people there were being miraculously healed. No one would have ever guessed that one of these Meals on Wheels guys had it in him. But that's the spirit at work, isn't it? Philip preaches Christ, and so many people are coming to faith that Peter and John have to come down for the city from the city to help manage it all. It's a regular revival. But God has even more plans for Philip, a far less traveled road that will lead him to not to multitudes this time, but to an encounter with just one man. An angel of the Lord tells Philip to head south, go beyond the city to the road that runs from Jerusalem um, to Gaza near the coast, the desert road. And without questioning, Philip goes, not knowing where this new path will lead. Maybe not able to imagine what could possibly be more important than the, the continuing su- success of that church on fire in Samaria, but, but trusting God all the same. The road really is a, a desert road, a road literally less traveled, um, rarely used because of its isolation and its lack of water. In fact, there's just one other traveler in sight, the Ethiopian official. Now, you have to know something about the official to understand the significance, his significance in God's big plan. He was way official, what we would call probably the Secretary of the Treasury in the United States today. Um, he was uh, a man who worked for Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. He would have been uh, well-to-do, uh, well-dressed, well-educated, and being seated in a chariot, he was well-equipped for travel. And, oh yeah, he was a eunuch. Now, the last part might sound like Luke, the author of Acts, is giving us too much information. We know eunuchs were popular staffing options for harems and stuff like that, but why would Luke make a point of including this little tidbit in our lesson this morning? Well, as it turns out, eunuchs were excluded from the worship assembly in Jerusalem in accordance with restrictions in both Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He would have been prohibited from full membership in the congregation of Israel. He could become a Jew by conversion, and he had. But he could only go as far as the outer courts of the temple. He was never allowed to be inside. Now, in spite of all that, things, things like that that were working against him in this holy city, um, he was still committed to the Lord. And he felt this need to, to make the, the difficult journey to Jerusalem and worship to whatever extent he could there. So Philip, a Jewish believer in Christ, fresh off his evangelistic success in Samaria without any formal seminary training, finds himself pretty much alone on this desert road with this strange stranger. And he hesitates. What happens? Well, we can't be sure. You know, he just witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit in Samaria bringing hundreds, maybe even thousands of people to faith in Jesus. And so it's probably not like he gets cold feet. Maybe he's intimidated by the aura of this man's power or wealth. Maybe he's put off because the man is just so foreign. Anyway, the Spirit gives him a little nudge. You know, go on, he urges. Catch up with his chariot. Talk to him. And so Philip picks up the pace, and as he gets closer, he can hear the man reading aloud from his Isaiah scroll. And of all places, chapter 53, some of the most messianic stuff in the, in the whole book. 
prophecies written about the Messiah 700 years before he was born. Now, you think this all happened by accident? By coincidence? No, not a chance. God had this guy targeted for truth. Think of how all these stories converged. Philip had fled Jerusalem to avoid being singed in the persecution there. He'd, he'd been working like a dog in Samaria, and, and now he's been journeying all the way south past Jerusalem on foot so that he can be at this exact spot on this exact day at this exact time so that he would be there to hear the eunuch read this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Even the rabbis were in disagreement over just who those verses had been referring to. In all the time since those words were first written, all of history since then, uh, before Jesus came unseen, no one really seemed to fit, you know, until now. Now, if there was any small talk about the weather or the hardship of a road trip, uh, Luke doesn't record that for us. In fact, uh, really, it sounds like Philip simply caught up with the chariot and asked the man, uh, I ask you, does the, uh, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to come up and sit with him, and Philip does. This is when the man asks him about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Now, Philip knew that Isaiah was talking about Jesus, who could have called down legions of angels to prevent his death, but he never did. He never opened his mouth for, for that kind of help as he was beaten and tortured and led away to be crucified for all our sins. And so beginning with those two verses, Philip guides the man through the text, telling him all about the good news of Jesus. He must have told him about baptism too, because as they travel along, they come to some water. And the eunuch says, see, here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And so he stops the chariot, and Philip baptizes him. Now, whether it was a stream or a pond or even just a muddy puddle out where they were in the wilderness, it would have been enough. Because in, in baptism, you know, God is the one who really does the work. He works the miracle. Uh, and how much water do you think God really needs? Now, he may not apply the water personally, but he's there in the sacrament, working forgiveness and, and adoption into the body of Christ. And that's what happened to the, the Ethiopian eunuch. He was, became a Christian, adopted into the body of Christ. After baptizing him, uh, Philip is suddenly spirited away, it says, by that same spirit that urged him to approach and that was the last the eunuch saw of him. The Bible says Philip was carried away to Azotus, a city maybe 20 miles or so to the north, depending on where they really uh, interacted on the road. And uh, from there he continued north, uh, preached his way uh, to Caesarea, where he eventually uh, made his home and raised a family. And the unnamed eunuch, well, says he went on his way rejoicing. And you can bet when he got home, he had a story that he has loved to tell. Through the convergence of God the Spirit, working through Philip the deacon evangelist, this newly uh, baptized Ethiopian official was used to bring Christ to a nation that likely played a role in nourishing the hungry hearts of a whole continent. Big picture. Even though the Ethiopian kings didn't recognize Christianity officially until 350 A.D., 
Ethiopian Christians trace their beginning to this man. God's role remains the same today. He works the miracle of faith, even as the players are constantly changing. Tucked in there with with Jesus in those two verses from Isaiah 53 is a question. It says, who can describe this generation? And what that question is really asking is, who will be around to tell his story? Recount is is the word that's used literally. Well, these days it's you and me. You know, it wasn't Philip's theological training that qualified him to uh, have all that evangelistic success. It never is. It was simply his willingness to allow God to work through him in a powerful way as he simply told the story of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. It's always about the story, not the storyteller, always. Paul would later write, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save him unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard of him? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You and I, we've all been sent. We've been unleashed on the world to share God's good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. With everyone God might send our way. With everyone we meet on our road through life. In the beginning, when we first learned the story, somebody sat beside us to guide us. Maybe it was your parents or grandparents, maybe another relative. Uh, maybe it was the Sunday school teachers you, you, you studied under or your pastors. They showed us how being baptized into Christ made us a part of that story, and we lived it, and we loved it. You know, we're a lot like Philip in that God can use us just as we are to guide others through the Scriptures in such a way that the Spirit shows them Jesus too. And we're a lot like the Ethiopian because having been shown, having been enlightened or really enlivened, our hearts too are filled with joy. You know, knowing that, that sin and death were conquered on the, on the cross and life eternal was assured for the children of God at the empty tomb on Easter morning, no matter where they hail from. We know that Jesus' own victory over death will be our victory someday, that dying isn't the end of all things. It's just moving day to a perfect place where our loving Savior already waits to welcome us home. God doesn't need you to be a, a preacher like Peter or even a missionary like Paul. But he could sure use a congregation full of Phillips, people who just love to tell the story. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.